We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley with Bob Brandon, and we are continuing our book review of How the West Won by Rodney Stark. And today we're going to tackle two chapters, 16 and 17. So how are you today, Bob? I'm good. I might see you towards the end of this month, Hampton. I've got to go down to Austin, Texas, and I'm going to go by way of Dallas. I might stop in to see you. Well, that'll be good. Maybe we'll be good. we have time to go play golf. <laughs> it doesn't take you very long to play golf, right? It takes you like two hours or something, maybe. If I'm by myself walking <laughs> in the morning, I can do it. I'm sure. I'm sure I would slow you down quite a bit, <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah. although I usually take enough balls that I don't have to go look for them. I just drop a new one. Well, I always like playing with you because I can just hit as many as I want till I get it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my rule. Oh, my gosh, that's my rule. So anyway, Hampton, here's how I wanted to begin this morning. I mean, you're going to drive us through these chapters. That'll be exciting. But last time. I foolishly made the comment uh, the word religion wasn't in the Bible. It is. And you pointed that out right away. You said, wait a sec, James chapter one, right? Pure and undefiled religion. So the Bible does use that term. Here's There's uh, five passages that have it. Here's an important one. Colossians 2.23 such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So self that, that term self-made religion is used there. Most of the time it's referring to, you had a really good definition of it. I forget what you said, but something along the lines like man's attempts to yeah. to reach God. Um, and that that's what I'm driving at. Tip, typically the Bible does not present itself, it does not present followers of the Bible as religious people, but more as truth seekers. That's what I'm driving at. Right. But you were right about that. I'm glad I. I'm glad you're my partner. Well, I uh, didn't realize there were five places. <laughs> <laughs> I had that one in my mind. Yeah, but you get the point, right? It's not very often that they use that. Right. So 
So okay. take, take us away. Well, the first chapter 16 is the industrial revolution. And he goes through and spends quite a few pages recounting the different big inventions that really changed society. And I'm just going to summarize those. Um, they talked about the like Scott and Chisholm made a mechanical pea sheller that could equal the output of 600 workers shelling by hand. <laughs> and then Eli Whitney uh, invented the cotton gin, which um, pulled the seeds out of the cotton and made it, you know, and England was over there with their water powered fabric mills and they needed cotton. And so the demand for cotton could be met because of that. Um, James Watt invented the steam engine, which made it possible to have factories away from rivers, because we'd learned in a previous chapter that in Britain they had all these water-powered mills. And then, um, I guess, uh, Henry Court invented a way to make iron uh, lighter and stronger, and that allowed them to make smaller steam engines, which they then put on in front of uh, what railroad carts and uh, and and then in, in ships. And so you had all of these inventions over the course of, I guess, the 1700, early 1800s. <clears throat> you know what was a fun read in there, Hampton? Was the uh, part where they had that contest, like the train contest, you know, whose engine mm -hmm. was the best. I think Quartz won. But that was a fun read. Yeah. Well, and they'd already built the railroad tracks because they had horses pulling these railroad cars full of ore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the tracks were laid. And then once they had steam engines, the horses were put out of business. Yeah. So well, now in these, because of these things, these factories needed workers and um, people started moving to the cities to work in the factories. <clears throat> and so um, his next section was called Mod Modernity and Its Discontents. And I wanted to read that. And it says, from the start, the Industrial Revolution has been denounced as a catastrophe that devastated the quality of life. Critics have imagined a now lost bucolic utopia. I had to look up bucolic. Yeah, nice and pastoral. That's a fun term. Yeah, relating to the pleasant aspects of the countryside. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, wherein no one hungered or shivered, and everyone enjoyed doing creative work with short hours, allowing ample time to tend their vegetable gardens and enjoy an intimate family life. In truth, life in pre-industrial rural villages was, as Thomas Hobbes put it, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Quote. Most people had little or no conception of the world more than five miles beyond their village. Most families lived without any privacy in one-room hovels. In winter, they often shared their dwelling with the livestock. I thought that was interesting um, when I lived in Germany and went up to, to Denmark. Um, there were still you saw some of that. I saw some of that where people lived in these uh, thatched roof houses. Yeah. Livestock on one end and them on the other, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
No one ever bathed. From time to time, most people went to bed hungry. Seldom did anyone have more than two sets of clothes, and often not even that. Most lived by doing backbreaking labor. Half the children did not live to the age of five. Yes. And people were old and often toothless by 40. With this reality in mind, we now turn to examine some of the, quote, evils of industrialization. Yeah, you know which one sticks out to me there that we read was the uh, half the children died before they were five. Right. Man, how sobering. Yeah, it was. Um, this first section is speaking of child's children. It's child labor. Um, and so you know, that's kind of blamed on the Industrial Revolution. Uh-huh. He said that the Industrial Revolution did not initiate child labor. It ended it. I had no idea that was the case. But it says, from earliest times, most children had labored long and hard. That was why we had the big families on the farm, I guess. But by gathering child laborers into factories, industrialization made them visible. This shocked genteel sensibilities to such an extent that governments began to pass laws to reform and subsequently to end these practices. Yeah, very good. Who'd have, who'd have thought, unless you saw the research that said that's how it went down? Right, right. Um, I don't know that that's true in certain in other countries in the East and stuff right now, but I think that may still go on. But <clears throat> yeah, maybe. Um, technophobia was another section. Um, I have that. I have that disease. Technophobia. <laughs> It's only two paragraphs, but I really liked it. I'm going to read the whole thing. The technological basis of the Industrial Revolution has always inspired fear and antagonism, especially among urban intellectuals. The romantic movement in art, music, and especially literature was partly a reaction against the rationality embodied in the new technology and against the pollution of nature and of spontaneous feelings by the rise of the mechanical. Technophobia began with poets such as Wordsworth and Blake, was celebrated in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and launched a whole series of movies in which technology dehumanizes or even attacks people, from Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times in 1936 to The Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951, The Terminator in 1984, and Avatar in 2009. In the political sphere, technophobia propels many so-called green proposals, such as allowing all the agricultural land in the Midwest to return to a state of nature and outlawing most forms of electrical generation, not only fossil fuel and atomic fuels, but even dams. The hatred and fear of technology can be traced back to intellectuals who visited the earliest factories and were revolted by the way, the fast-moving machines restricted human action. They found it dehumanizing for people to work in coordinating in coordination with machines. But many of these critics had never done physical labor and therefore failed to comprehend that factory work was less physically demanding than the traditional forms of labor they deemed to be more natural and humane. The truth is that field hands 
flocked to the factories, not only because they paid much better, but also because the work was less grueling. Sadly, too many of these critics' intellectual descendants have failed to catch on. I see. It wasn't that bucolic life <laughs> on, the, on the farm. You had to work from can see to can't see. Yeah, and you, you'd have to explain to me the significance of those movies he listed. I haven't seen those. Well, the term, and I, I, I don't remember. I've seen Modern Times, like the old one, but um, the Terminator is uh, a robot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just chasing down and trying to kill somebody. Uh, Avatar is about, you know, us going to another planet where these blue cat-like people with tails run through the trees and live in harmony with nature. And we're destroying their their land and that kind of stuff. What about, what about the uh, current, all the news about AI? That that's technophobia to me. That that's bringing the techno guys inside our bodies. Yeah, um, so I, they have a new thing called Chat GPT. I don't know what that stands for, but this is an artificial intelligence engine, and you can ask it, you know, a question, and it will. You know, it's crawled the internet and all the stuff, and it uses artificial intelligence to create answers. So my son was working on his Dallas Drainage Pros website to, you know, for marketing, and you know, we can help you. And mm -hmm. he asked this thing. He says, uh, "How do you build a French drain?" Because he wanted an article to post on his site, and it mm -hmm. created on the fly. A mm -hmm. very well written article on how to build a French drain. Yeah, said, I've, you know, I've heard that. And, and um, so it's it's kind of interesting. We're working on a project, <clears throat> and we're crawling all of the pages of Bible.org and taking all of that, throwing it into the in the engine, and trying to figure out ways to make it smarter when it answers theological questions. I see. I'm not convinced that's possible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have some people that want to see if we, they can do it. Who were so? Who were these Luddite guys that come up in the in our chapter? Yeah, he says uh, in November 1811, a group of weavers of hosiery and lace destroyed several mechanical looms in Nottinghamshire, England, motivated by fears that they would be reduced to unskilled laborers as machines took over the skilled craft of weaving. So, I, I think that I remember the word sabotage comes from the Dutch word sabot or something. Maybe not Dutch, but the word sabot for which was wooden shoe. Huh. And so they broke the machines by throwing their wooden shoes into the cogs. Oh. So Wait, that, that'd be a great trivia question. <laughs> there you go. So I don't know if that was related to this or if um that was this. But I see. Or a different a different event. <clears throat> So he goes to goes into the you know point that 
technology does replace some skilled occupations, but it creates many more skilled jobs. So, you know, that sheet, that pea sheller that could do the work of however many, 1600 people or, or something like that, whatever it was, you need people now to build that machine, to service that machine, to sell that machine. Yeah. And so, um, all of those jobs are more fun than sitting there shelling peas all day long. Yeah. In, in other words, really, the society as a whole becomes more efficient. It's, it's not like jobs are lost. It just the whole thing becomes more efficient. Yeah. I mean, you think about how hard it is to, I mean, having lived on a ranch and gone deer hunting. and It's a lot of work to kill a cow and butcher it and cut it up. And then what do you do with all that meat? Right. You know, and, and so the fact that you can just go buy a package of ground beef and put it in the freezer, saves right. you many hours, which frees you up to do other th- fun things like golf or go on the mission field. <clears throat> right. There's a, so there, <laughs> there's another, uh, you know, paragraph down below that mentions an author, Walter Buckingham, because the uh, concern, you know, was uh, what we're talking about, like with computers and so on, that's Mm going to put people out of work, but really it, it just creates a whole new section of the economy. But anyway, he mentions this with respect to uh, Detroit, you know, the making of automobiles and so on. So I think, I'm right about this. Which city in the United States in the 1960s had the highest per capita income? Well, I'm guessing Detroit, since we just brought that up. Yeah, Detroit, the auto manufacturers. And uh, now it's making a comeback. But for a couple decades, you know, up till recently, that thing was a wasteland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. So here's a uh, here's a lesson too. In in that, I think I'm right about those numbers. I've looked that up before. Go back and check on your computer how many conservative mayors there have been since the '60s in Detroit. I can save you the effort. <laughs> Zero. Yeah. And that city went under. Highest per capita income, the thing went under. They never had good, good leadership. But carry, carry us forward, Hampton. Well, that's um, well. His last paragraph in this chapter: the Industrial Revolution was the culmination of the rise of Western civilization that began in Greece twenty-seven centuries ago. It was the product of human freedom and the pursuit of knowledge which is precisely why it happened where and when it did. So the next chapter, freedom and knowledge is next chapter 17 is called Liberty and Prosperity. Well, this is a good one. I would would retitle this Liberty plus property equals prosperity. Oh, very good. And he makes a big deal because it is a big deal about property rights. And, you know, if you can have what you produce and your inventions taken away from you, 
then there's no motivation to work harder to produce more or design machines to produce more and to save labor. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, Britain had the most liberty and even had patent laws going back to the, I think he said the Magna Carta. Yeah. Um, to protect inventors. And I also thought it was interesting that every time he praised Britain, he usually mentioned the Netherlands as having similar freedoms. And I don't, I didn't realize that they were you know, so good at all of this. <clears throat> yeah, um, yes. I have. Did he start out with our buddy Karl Marx? Yes, he did. <laughs> Do you want to comment on Karl Marx's contribution? <laughs> Not well. He didn't contribute anything. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, yeah, he says down under the prop liberty and property rights, recall from chapter nine that the Magna Carta guaranteed the property rights, not only of British citizens, but even of foreign merchants. Hence, unlike their counterparts in China, iron industrialists in England were secure against government seizure. Writing in 1776, the same year that James Watt perfected his steam engine, Adam Smith explained why liberty and security Secure property rights were uh, produced progress. Adam Smith says, the security which the laws of Great Britain give to every man that he shall enjoy the fruits of his own labor is alone sufficient to make any country flourish. The natural effort of every individual is to better his own condition. When suffered to exert itself with freedom and security is so powerful a principle that is alone and without any assistance capable of carrying on the society to wealth and prosperity in great britain in industry is perfectly secure and though it is far from being perfectly free it is as free or freer than any other part of europe um, yes. and i <clears throat> thought this next paragraph about france was interesting he says in contrast taxes were so confiscatory in france that as smith pointed out the french farmer was afraid to have a good team of horses or oxen but endeavors to cultivate with the meanest and most wretched instruments of husbandry that he can so that he will appear poor to the tax collector writing to a friend back in france during a visit to england voltaire expressed his surprise that the British farmer is not afraid to increase the number of his cattle or to cover his roof with tile lest his taxes be raised next year. Yeah, that's good insight. You know, the way this chapter struck me was, you know, very similar to what Adam Smith was saying. I, I just would put it in my theological terms, but when, when you secure an individual's freedom in essence, what you're doing, I think, is unleashing the power of God, that that individual's God's image. Right. So so when you free him up and secure him to just do his God-given task of ruling the world, you know, whatever form that takes for any individual, you're unleashing, in a sense, you know, a little bit remotely, but still God's power. And it, it okay, that's why I've said a number of times you know we'll get you'll see in the news from time to time you know these proposals of different kind of social programs you know to help the poor the thing in history that's helped the poor more than any you could add up every other program it would never even come close to 
capitalism is mm. what helps the poor. Right. So yeah, the, the whole industrial revolution is the proof great of that. testament to that. Yeah. Yeah. He goes into the, he talks about high labor costs and uh, how the British were way more productive than the French and that the French um, were so poorly fed. They could only do work for maybe three hours a day that the British um, soldier was four inches taller than the average French sol soldier in the 1700s. Yeah. And, uh, and so they would cr create machines to, to do the labor and then um, they would end up paying people more per hour to run the machines. And so the labor, um, they reduced their labor costs with the number of people, but then the fewer people that worked on it made more money. Yeah. And their product, you know, their overall production went through the roof. Yeah. I think um, he points out that, Prior to this time, it was primarily the rich people who were able to buy things. And so most of the commerce was selling to the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And this enabled um, mass production, enabled them to actually sell, make things cheaper and sell to the middle class. Right. And then and on top of that, then the middle class is making more money because their labor right, is higher of cost of labor so they actually have some cash so they can start buying cheaper stuff yeah the next uh, section that i thought was good was uh, embracing commerce i didn't realize this but prior to pretty much you know this time most societies looked down on commerce and i didn't realize that either i didn't yeah i didn't realize that aristotle the romans china even lots of places in uh, Europe. And uh, who is it that said that England is a nation of shopkeepers? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Well, uh, that, that was Adam Smith, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it might have been. And so um, we talked about, you know, Britain embraced the, all of this industry and their trade with the New World, and, and that helped the port cities to grow. Um, he also had a section in here about um, Britain being the first to start public education. We'd already talked about the universities around Europe, mm -hmm. but they started what they called petty schools to teach people to read and write and arithmetic and bookkeeping. Yeah, because they needed that labor force. Right. Um, and then he talks about the American middle uh, miracle, not middle American miracle. Um, and just how fast things took off in America because the miracle of production was possible only because America had also forged ahead in the industrial revolution. Indeed, during the 19th century, it seemed as if all the inventors lived in the United States. <laughs> Why had this occurred? For all the same reasons that the Industrial Revolution had originated in Britain, political freedom, secure property rights, high wages, cheap energy, and a highly educated population, plus a plentitude of resources and raw materials and a huge, rapidly growing domestic market. 
In fact, by early in the 19th century, United States surpassed Britain in all these crucial factors. So, yeah, I know. I know there's uh, <clears throat> you can't get too too many radio stations up here in the mountains. But one I used to listen to is I drive my daughter to school, you know, years ago, they had an economic guy that would come on or like an investor. I think he paid to have a little five minute thing on Fridays or something. And he was over by you, you know, back in the day you were in Carbondale, I think. Yeah. And his, his, yeah. So he, he was over there and he was fascinating to listen to. And one day he made the point about patents and he asked, you know, the question, what country produces the most patents per year and it, he said something like, you could add up, every other country wouldn't equal the United States every year in patents. And that was a recent phenomena. Yeah. And it, and it was interesting, you know, the points he drew from that. Um, there's some interesting applications to, the, to what COVID is in the patent world, but we'll get to that at some other point. Yeah, we talked about that before. But um, yeah, the... I have a friend that invented, now we mentioned, I've mentioned this previously, but he invented a bunch of balloons. You <laughs> have 33 straws with 33 balloons with rubber bands holding the neck of the balloon to the straw. And the 33 straws are connected to a thing you can put on any of your water hose. <laughs> and you turn on the water for, 20 seconds and it fills all 33 balloons up and then the weight of the balloon drops it off the straw it seals the oh and the, the rubber band tightens up yeah, around the rubber band tightens up and so you could fill up a hundred balloons an hour <laughs> if, if you uh, yeah 20 seconds you know times three times well a lot faster than an hour you could do i mean I, i'm in a minute i'm in a minute yeah oh, sorry. yeah 100 balloons a minute and uh so Anyway, um, it was a big thing. He was on, I think it was Good Morning America or the Today Show and having a <laughs> balloon fight with the people. And I don't remember how, this is quite a ways back, but um, his patent was infringed upon by some, I think, Chinese toy manufacturer. Walmart bought the the bad guys' balloons and were selling them and they took them to court and they won, and then they just changed the color of the balloons. Get around the patent. Get around yeah. the patent infringement thing, and they got sued again and lost again. And finally, I guess there's a three-judge panel, three-person panel uh, up at the patent office, and they they can take your patent away from you. And uh, they did. They just basically said, yeah, you know, this is nothing you know special, and he lost it. And... Um, they're doing that to all kinds of people now. Sure. So, you know, sure. this, this importance of our property rights are certainly being infringed on. You know. I'll say, let me just review those points again, like why the U.S. all of a sudden took over Britain and dominated the world. Political freedom, secure property rights, high wages, cheap energy, and a highly educated population. 
Yeah, the education thing was interesting too. Um, you know, he goes into some detail about Gutenberg and the printing press, and you know, we got the Geneva Bible and uh, King James. So by the time you've got you know Puritans and Pilgrims over here in 1600. Um, they were really interested in reading their Bibles. Right. And so one of the primary motivations for educating their children to be able to read so that they could all read the Bible. Right. You don't, don't really hear that in our education anymore. Now they're more interested in convincing you you're not a boy or a girl. Yeah. The, <laughs> the very first book to come off the printing press, the Bible. Right. Um, we talked about immigration, which was nothing new. I felt, you know, everybody knew it was, there was lots of land over here for the, for the taking. And, and, uh, so lots of people moved here for the opportunity. Yeah. They were, they were go-getters, right? They, they wanted to set up shop. They wanted to own land and be productive. That's why they were coming. Right. And then he talked about organized invention instead of just random inventions by individuals, whole businesses sprung up like Thomas Edison's Menlo Park laboratory. And they, you know, with dedication to inventing things and solving problems and, and certainly in the world of computers, you know, people are sitting there trying to figure out better ways to network going. How do you go faster? Do you use copper? Can you go, you know, use fiber optics cables, mm -hmm. you know, so sure. they're uh, very intentional about inventing new stuff. Sure. You know that, um, and it, boy, these are just really fun stories in history, but just as a cross section of all of that, the uh, Edison and Tesla, contests you know both trying to beat the other to certain inventions and stuff like that what a fascinating time in history what have those those guys were geniuses and yeah. uh oh man it was so good like he didn't, what, have, much, he didn't have anything in here about tesla <laughs> no he mentioned he mentioned him as an immigrant he mentioned him as one of the immigrants okay. he's originally serbian his name was in there but yeah he, he he didn't highlight my hero. I know he he's your favorite guy. But it but uh, I was just gonna make the point if they it got so cutthroat, like uh, when Tesla started to produce alternating current, and uh, you know Edison of course was direct current, and so they were you know battling each other for who could get certain patents or the rights to. Um, you know, light up a certain city and so on. And so uh, I think Edison like stole an elephant from like the local circus <laughs> and electrocuted it and, and blamed it on Tesla said this, this is, this is alternate current. Oh my goodness. This is what it'll do for you. And it, it, I don't even think it was alternate current. I think it was direct current, but he said it was, alternating current you know just to blame tesla i mean it just got so cutthroat oh my gosh it's it's a fun slice of history to look at yeah but they, they were both geniuses well i think that concludes the chapter but 
He says, uh, you know, the industrial revolution changed life everywhere on earth. It sure did. The last, you know, his last paragraphs are always good. I'll just read the first sentence of this one. From early days, the rise of Western modernity was a function of freedom, freedom to innovate and freedom from confiscation of the fruits of one's labors. That's the key. We've said it before, right? When you govern a region, an area, a nation, you know, more in accordance with the essence of what a human being really is, the image of God, then things prosper. And when you govern contrary to that, you know, everything stops, just stops dead in its tracks. Right. So <clears throat> I was wondering if we could look at something happen. I think we might have enough time. Sure. So, you know, the Kindle, maybe that's also an example of industrial, right? When right. I was growing up, you didn't have a thing. You could just push a button and a book would appear on that you could read. I mean, that's fascinating to me. Yes. It, uh, and I like all the space it saves. On yeah. The, on the bookshelf. Exactly. I mean, it's, but you can't underline as well. You can highlight, you know, but I can't write notes in the margin. So I usually, if I'm reading a book, I like to interact with the author. You know, I always picture it as I'm sitting down with somebody. Like when we read Stark, How the West Won, I, I imagine us sitting there together. I usually have some sort of <clears throat> refreshing beverage and then. I, I just picture myself interacting with Stark, you know, not just passively reading what he's saying, but thinking it through with him and, you know, writing questions in the margin. That's one way to check a good author, by the way, is when, when you have a question about the material that's being presented, uh, remember that question or write it down somewhere. And if it's a really good author, within a paragraph or a page he'll answer that question you know that that means you're tracking with him mm -hmm. so anyway to switch the subject you know how many times i've referred to theirs uh concerning the covid stuff so this is i'm going to read just a little bit from this book that i just got on my kindle the fourth reich by uh, Horowitz and how do you see Dees or Dace? Dace. Dace. So anyway, it's a series of interviews about people in the dead center and the hurricane of all this COVID stuff. You know, most of them are doctors, but some of them are nurses. Some of them are, you know, innocent people that just got caught up in the whole thing. Um, but this is a chapter with uh, Jessica Rose. And Jessica Rose, Dr. Rose has become the foremost expert in the VAERS data for the COVID shots, having monitored an endless stream of trends since the first month of the release of the shots. As an applied mathematician, immunologist, computational and molecular biologist, and biochemist, Dr. Rose is eminently qualified to compute, analyze, and interpret the level of concern from VAERS reporting and warned the world 
about the sickening safety signals from day one. So VAERS, just to bring us up to speed, that's an acronym for uh, Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. So um, she has been analyzing that from day one. And uh, she's making the same point we've been making about it, but I just want people to hear it from an expert. So she says at one point, she's being interviewed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're asking her questions about this. She says right away in January of 2021, and you don't need expertise for that assessment to have been correctly made. What you would have needed is a basic information on how VAERS functions as a pharmacovigilance tool. So if you detect a safety signal, a safety signal for death, for example, has been historically 50 people. In the context of a biological product like a flu vaccine, then you pull the product. 50 has traditionally been the cutoff. So you understand what she's saying, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you create a medicine or a vaccine or something and it kills more 50 people, they you stop producing it. You pull it off the market. Something's wrong. So she says in January, we're talking about the month after the rollout in the U.S. and Israel began on December 17th. We already had more than 50 deaths in VAERS from the 17th through the 31st of, of December of December they had more than 50 deaths <clears throat> so and that is even before we address the underreporting factor right right I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second within a complex self-reporting system thus we already had a safety signal from only death but it's even worse than that we also already had safety signals from hundreds of adverse event types. We're currently up to 14,000 different adverse event types. Types. Types of adverse events. We had neurological signals. We had cardiovascular signals. We had pathological signals. We had immunological signals. We had death. We had hospitalization, we had diabetes, you name it. We had already had all the signals in January, right? Just after the first 15 days or so, they already had this. But most of the public <clears throat> had not even been injected yet. It hadn't, it, this thing hadn't even really gotten rolling and it was already that overwhelming. And remember, we said, um, one of the last podcasts, one of the last two, from freedom of information pursuits into Pfizer, they hired, the CDC hired an entire uh, company to handle theirs for them. CDs, theirs is a CDC mm -hmm. product. So they hired a separate company to do that because they thought they'd be overwhelmed. They hired it before the rollout. Why, why were they thinking they'd be overwhelmed? 
And it literally says in their response to the um, Freedom of Information, they expected at least a thousand calls a day. Yeah. So, in that, they knew all this. So, anyway, she goes on and on. But I just wanted people to hear that from an expert. That's not just me touting off numbers that I see, you know, in a news report or something. And when she gets into the underreporting part, I think she's conservative. She says it's about one in 30. So according to her, you can multiply every number in VARES by 30. And I, I'd say it's closer to 100. I, I'm, I'm well, certain it's Harvard, over 100. There was a Harvard study that came up with the 100 number. When I first started looking at VARES, um, it, that was on the CDC's webpage when you went to VARES, was the Harvard study. It's no longer there. Oh, really? Yep. <clears throat> Got to suppress. So they, <laughs> they don't. Suppress they don't. The don't want you to know that anymore. So it's so uh, overwhelming. And then there's good detail. You know, she gives you good detail. And from some other sections of that book, there's good detail about people trying to report to VARES. One woman said, you know, they had like literally killed her daughter with the vaccine. It was clearly from the vaccine. Kid was fine beforehand. So she's going to report to VAERS. Because I guess they have different portals. You know, a doctor can report mm -hmm. or, a, or a patient has a way to report. She said it took her three days to do the report because the thing times you out. So, you know, how you're filling out information on the internet sometimes, you know, it'll have like little red dots by mm -hmm. the things you have to, the information you have to submit. And if you, if you take too long at times, you have, you have to start from the beginning. She said it took her three days. Well, how many people are going to have three days to sit there and do that? Yeah. And, and then they had examples. So, and it's not just an incompetent person. They have plenty of examples of doctors trying to make the report to VAERS and they can't, they don't have three days, obviously. They mm -hmm. usually don't even have 10 minutes to do yeah. that. And it's just really laborious. So the whole point is <clears throat> the information that we do get in VAERS is overwhelming. Just the information that's there already, but let alone multiplying it by 30 or 100 times. Even just what's there is overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. You have to ask the question, well, why isn't this being stopped? Mm -hmm. And Horowitz and Dace will make the point, there is no good answer. They don't know the answer, but there's no good answer to that. <laughs> so I just wanted people to, to hear that. It's a good book because the, they uh, really have experts like you read that woman's or you heard that woman's qualifications. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and, like and, they do that soon. Right. And so many of the chapters are like that. They have eminently qualified people to, that are on the inside of this thing that are just going, what in the world? And so obviously they're piecing it all together. We'll talk about that at some later point. Maybe we need a new book, The Decline of Western Civilization, How the West Lost. <laughs> well, I've, I've been thinking about that. So, 
you know, the whole picture in my mind, I guess I'll, I'll just make this final comment, Hampton, then you can wrap up how you see fit. But the paradigm that's in my mind for the subject we're covering, you know, how the West one is, I, I would call it biblical embryology. <laughs> like you're watching the fourth beast of Daniel's um, beast, right? Or the fourth mm -hmm. kingdom of the statue. Uh, embryologically evolving. I, I don't mean evolution as a, you know, like how things got started. I mean, the, the literal term, you know, how it's forming. And that that's fascinating to me. You know, you remember Jesus saying, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. And these things are just the beginnings of birth pangs. And it's like the world is struggling to give birth to the, final beast and i think we're we're nine months pregnant it does seem that way this whole industrial technological revolution has uh enabled global information you know to be sent out instantly yeah i think yeah i think you know if when you brought up how the west lost <laughs> it's the fathers were so Founding fathers of our country were so good at um, at what they could see before them, you know. And so, how do you set up a system that can handle uh, the rough roads of sin nature? And so, you divide the powers, blah blah mm -hmm. blah. It, it was it was political genius at the time, but I don't think they could have seen the takeover of institutions, and that's what we're seeing. You know, it's not that there aren't fantastic medical doctors, but the institution of medicine has been taken over. The FDA, NIH, all those things are taken over. Mm -hmm. There's good people in there, but but they've been taken over. So I, I don't think the founding fathers could have seen that. And then with the amount of money that comes out of there, like you were I think you said, was it private conversation or did you say it on the podcast, how much money they gave to Harvard? Yeah. On the podcast last, um, last time we 600 million or something just to Harvard or 600 billion each year. <laughs> okay. So then when you think of Harvard as an institution that's been taken over, I think it was Yale actually, but yeah. Yale. Yeah. Right. But that that's how they get taken over is by the mm -hmm. by the money. And I, I don't think the founding fathers could have conceived of the power of money that would be created by the culture they were designing. Right. It was so efficient that you could. And here's what happens. So don't turn me off just yet. I want to make one <laughs> one final point. What it seems like what happens with vast wealth is those that uh, have control of it, they don't want to lose it. So they start um, manipulating the culture so that they cannot lose. Here's a prime example. So, um, you know, today you'll hear about billionaires is not as staggering of a thought as it used to be, right? There's a fair number of billionaires. But imagine in 1905, having over 250 billion dollars yeah. in 1905 and that that was john rockefeller well what did he do with that 
Well, the first thing he does is buy every refinery, I, literally, I think, except one or two. So he could literally say to the Congress, I don't own the whole thing. He had like 99% of the oil production in the U.S., but not just the oil, right? He had the refineries, and he realized he would be hamstrung by the railroads to, to ship the oil around. So he bought all the railroads. And then he realized, you know, the press could be against him. So he bought the press, <laughs> right? So that you don't want competition yeah, be, because you have it all. So that's what you see with these institutions. They, they control uh, everything. It's very hard to oppose them. Like, for instance, you know, this case, everybody should be following this. This, this is a huge news item, although you're not really going to see it in the press or the mainstream media. But that trial in Texas about, um, you know, the, the Pfizer's on trial in Texas for the, like, malpractice in their their own trials, right? That nurse mm -hmm. is, is bringing that case. Anyway, that what you, here's so far, you know, they've had the opening arguments where they sort of say what they're going to present, you know, during the trial. Th this is Pfizer's defense so far. <laughs> they're not contesting the data. You, you couldn't, it's overwhelming. Here's their defense. The FDA is on our side and they regulate us so if you want to get anybody get them well the fda's government mm -hmm. government isn't gonna sue itself so once you capture the uh, institutions it's very hard to defeat them so we'll see what happens down there but i i don't have high hopes no, we'll have to wait for Jesus to return for justice. And he talks about that. Does that's an, that would be a fascinating study, the word justice in the Bible. And when he comes back and leads justice to victory. Ooh, my goodness. I'm not innocent, by the way, but but I'm on the right side. <laughs> Okay. okay, champ. Well, that was good. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.